Well, Carolyn Smith, I hope you enjoyed that special music. <laughs> Open your Bibles up, please, to James chapter 5. Fifth chapter of the book of James, page 1210, if you're using a pew Bible. text before us uh, this morning here in the fifth chapter of James is a really difficult New Testament text. Kind of echoes with the fiery rhetoric, rhetoric of Old Testament prophets. You can almost smell the smoke when you read these words. Reminds me of the prophet Isaiah who writes in chapter 10, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights in order that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of judgment and in the devastation that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out, the prophet says. Well, the prophet Amos, in the fourth chapter of his work, Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the days are coming upon you, when they will take you away with meat hooks, and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. The fiery preaching of the Old Testament prophets. And then we arrive at the words of James, chapter 5, before us this morning. Come now, you rich... Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Same kind fiery preaching 
that one hears in the Old Testament prophets. Judgment, James is pronouncing. Judgment upon those who are wealthy and hard-hearted towards those who are poor and suffering. This is a very, very interesting section of James' letter. He's not writing to the believers here in this first part of chapter 5. He's writing to unbelievers. He's, He's writing to those wealthy individuals who are oppressing the people of God. How do I know that to be true? Because he speaks here of the miseries to come upon them, the return of Christ. He speaks of the judgments to come upon them at the, at the beginning of the messianic kingdom. Chapter 5 and verse 7, he turns to the believers. He says, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And he counsels patience to the believers who are in the midst of the suffering. But he condemns those who misuse their wealth to make life hard for the people of God. So what does that have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? What would James say to us this morning? You may not think you're wealthy. And perhaps relative to your neighbors, you're not. But my friends, relative to the world at large, both presently and historically, we are a wealthy people. It's a fact. We are rich. We are wealthy. And James does have something to say to us. Now, the Bible never condemns wealth per se. What it condemns is the misuse of wealth. The hard-heartedness that can easily come to those who are wealthy. They close off their heart toward those in need. They use their wealth for their own gratification, hardening their heart to those around them. Paul says to Timothy that money is not the problem. Paul says it is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. And we live in a day and an age when we have a lot of it. We have a lot of it. But what would he say to us this morning? He's not calling down judgment upon us. If we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven of our sin. We are not destined for wrath, Paul would say. We are not the wicked wealthy spoken of in these six verses. So can we simply ignore it? Can we simply say, well, this is for someone else. And that we find ourselves in verses 7 through 11, where he speaks of being patient in our sufferings. I think not. I think not. I think to pass over this text that easily is to avoid something that God would have for us. 
as he speaks these words of condemnation and judgment. Paul says that all Scripture is inspired and profitable. Is that right? Profitable to us for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So I think there is something for us this morning here in these verses. Yes, we are not destined for wrath and judgment, to be sure. But nevertheless, there is something that we need to hear. We need to have our hearts weighed in the balance of the Word of God. We need the sharp and probing searchlight of the Spirit of God to examine us, to see where we might have within our own hearts the attitude or at least the seed of the attitude that can blossom into the kind of wickedness that James here condemns. We need to be searched this morning. We need to be reminded of how seriously God views the misuse of wealth so that we might, before God, humble our hearts, confess our sin, and be healed. My friends, the misuse of wealth is a mark of worldly wisdom that James counsels against over in chapter 3 and verse 15. It is the wisdom that comes from below, natural, earthly, and demonic. So we need to hear these words. We need to hear them. James identifies for us this morning in these verses four sins that are common to wealth. Four sins that are common to wealth so that we might guard our heart in what James calls the last days. We are living in the last days. And we need to live in light of that truth. Four sins. Now, you may not be guilty of all four of them. It is likely you are guilty of at least one of them. Let God open your heart to hear what he has to say. Four sins. Number one, hoarding. The sin of hoarding. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, and I like the way the NIV translates it here, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. How true that is. How true it is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned against the hoarding of treasures. He said in Matthew 6 and verse 19, Do not lay up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now the half-brother of our Lord evaluates the believers to whom he is writing. And he speaks this message to them. 
And He speaks it to them that they might, like us, have their hearts weighed by the Word of God. The rich engaging in the very practice that Jesus condemns. Verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries. James is not calling for repentance. In chapter 4 and verse 9, he says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. There he is calling the believer to repentance. There is no call to repentance here in these six verses. This is nothing but a statement of condemnation. He is calling down the wrath of God. He is indicating to them through the words, weeping and howling for your miseries, the despair that will come upon them in the day of the Lord. When they stand before Christ, their judgment arrives. Look at the end of verse 3. It is in the last days, he says, that you have stored up your treasure. The last days. The return of the Lord is close, James says. A few verses later, the judge is standing right at the door. The end of verse 9. He's saying when the judge arrives, misery will accompany him. They've disregarded God's claim upon them. The claim upon their wealth. How God would have them invest it. And he says, you have nothing to look forward to but misery. Misery will overwhelm you in the day of your foolishness. You will howl, he says, like the howling of a wolf at night. You will weep as one weeps the loss of a son. Weeping and howling for your miseries. Miseries that will precede the messianic kingdom. Jesus spoke also of these days in Luke 6, verse 24. Where he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. It's a consistent message. It's a consistent message. For those who are wealthy and have hardened their heart and are misusing the wealth that God has entrusted to them. The day of the Lord will be a day of weeping and howling and miseries. How will these miseries come upon them? James answers it in verses 2 and 3. It is their wealth that will become their judge. Your riches have rotted, he says. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Now we have to understand something about culture of the first century. Garments, particularly outer garments, were a means by which a family would both display its wealth and preserve its wealth. They would be very finely tailored garments embroidered with gold and silver threads. Even jewels upon the garments. They were spectacular. And they would be passed down 
from father to son, mother to daughter. They were a means by which one preserved and displayed their wealth. James says, your garments have become moth-eaten. Your riches have rotted. He goes on to speak of their gold and silver in verse 3. He says that they have rusted or corroded. The interesting thing is that pure gold and pure silver don't rust. So it's possible he's talking about an alloy which will corrode or tarnish. But it may also be likely that he is speaking metaphorically to them. Speaking metaphorically to the fact that in the judgment day, their gold and their silver will be as worthless as rusty pig iron. We're not sure. It's interesting how he describes them here. Three verbs he uses, rotted, rusted, and moth-eaten. Your riches, your wealth are rusted, rotted, and moth-eaten. In the Greek, all these verbs are are perfect tense verbs. And and that speaks of of a present state of a person's wealth. He's saying that they are already rotted. They are already corroded. They're already moth-eaten. Well, how can that be? What is it that he's speaking to? He's speaking to a condition that already exists. They are already worthless. It's just, it takes eyes of faith to see that reality. It is only for one who has eyes of faith can know that the treasures of this world, no matter how vast and how shiny they are, In the eyes of God, they're worthless. What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? In the day of judgment, my friends, the size of one's bank account will matter not one iota. In fact, just the opposite. God will turn the ledger balance against us. Judgment. But it takes eyes of faith to see this condition. The worthlessness eternally of the riches of this earth. Beyond that, he says that at the judgment seat, the corrosion of this accumulated wealth will be called forward as a witness for the prosecution. And it will convict them of their hard-heartedness towards the poor. It will be like a rusty chain eating into their soft pink flesh. Can't help but be reminded as I read this of Jacob Marley. You remember him? Jacob Marley with his chains that in his life he had forged, right? Was forced, according to Dickens, to carry forward in eternity. My friends, James is speaking here to people who are in love with their wealth rather than in love with God. And he is saying that this very thing in which you are placing all of your hope, all of your security, all of your trust will turn on you in the end and will consume you like fire in the judgment. Write this down. Disuse of our possessions stands as a witness 
to our misuse of wealth. Let me repeat it for you. Disuse of our possessions stands as a witness to the misuse of our wealth. Or if you would like the abbreviated version, disuse equals misuse. Disuse equals misuse. Again, the end of verse 3, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Rather than invest it for the good, you have stored it up. And by storing it up, you are misusing what God has intended to be used. Wow, does this thing sink home? We live in a culture that is in love with the accumulation of stuff. Our closets, our garages are filled with junk that we no longer use. They say in Southern California that people leave a $35,000 automobile in the driveway and fill their garage with yard sale stuff. And how true it is. Things that were bought at one point or another that have fallen into disuse and now sit on shelves or in boxes, sometimes to the ceiling, idle, unused, screaming out against our hoarding, our hoarding. Do you know the self-storage industry is a relatively new industry? According to Google, it's a $20 billion a year industry measured by revenues. $20 billion a year is spent for self-storage. Just to give you a little something to balance that against, the entire book publishing industry is $27 billion. Two-thirds of the entire book publishing industry in the United States is now spent on storing stuff that people don't need. Pods, portable on-demand storage. Now you don't even have to go to a storage place. They'll bring it to you. And it goes on and on and on. Now I know I'm stepping on toes. And beginning with my own. Beginning with my own. My friends, these things should not be. They should not be. Even our money wealth can be misused through disuse. Accumulating bank accounts, continually growing bank accounts, retirement plans, 401ks, real estate deals, as we stack up the wealth, and the work of God goes begging. If this is the last day, if these are really the last days, what are we doing? Why are we saving so much? Is it perhaps because we think Christ is never really going to return? It's an interesting question. Disuse is misuse. 
Be careful. Be careful what you accumulate, for someday you and I will give an account. Master, see the ten denarii that you have given to me. I have saved them for you. You wicked servant. You wicked servant. Hoarding the first sin of wealth. Secondly, fraud. Fraud. Verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Behold, he says, pay attention, listen up. Wake up from your slumber. Notice how James describes their wickedness here. He doesn't describe it in in terms of their being shrewd and cutting a, a sharp deal with another businessman. He doesn't even describe it as as defrauding another wealthy person. He says you you have defrauded the most vulnerable members of society. Those who cannot care for themselves. The day laborer. The one who harvests your large estates. The one who depends on being paid at the end of the day in order to put food in his belly. What have you done? He has worked your fields. He has harvested your estate. It should be a time of feasting. The harvest season is upon us, and yet you will not even pay him his wage. Wickedness of your heart. By the way, God has always been concerned about this. Always. In the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Verses 14 and 15. Moses writes, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in the land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. Why? For he is poor and he sets his heart on it, so that he may not cry out against you to the Lord and it become sin in you. Or Leviticus 19 and verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You are to pay him. You are to pay him what he has earned. These people were dependent upon it. They had no safety net. They had no savings accounts. They had nothing to fall back on. To not get paid was to not eat. And to not eat was to put yourself and your family in jeopardy of starvation. These people lived on the edge. It's hard for us, I know. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. That's a prayer we find so difficult to identify with. My friends, around the world, there are many, many, many people who live this way. It's called hand-to-mouth. Hand-to-mouth. Notice what James says in verse 4. 
He says that both the withheld wages and the cries of the workers are not gone unnoticed by God. It may be that the wicked wealthy have closed their ears, but God's ears are open and God hears. It has reached the ears, the end of verse 4. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth, the God of the armies, literally. The armies of heaven. The God of the armies of heaven. Who could dispatch an angel and slay 185,000 of the Assyrians in a night? He has heard the cry of the poor. And he will respond. So what about us? What does this mean to us? How do we apply this truth to us? Let me start with this. If you are a Christian businessman, or you are in a position of influence and authority in the business world, then you have a Christian obligation to pay a living wage. It's as simple as that. We should not look at our workforce and try to figure out how much can we squeeze them. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what does it take for this family to live? How can I pay them a living wage? In a general sense, perhaps you're not a, in a position of authority over the wages of another person. But yet we still have an obligation to, to live honestly and honorably before a watching world. Is that not true? How do you handle your finances? Let me apply it that way. How do you handle your finances? Are you honest and honorable? Do you cheat on your taxes? Are you slow in paying your bills? Do you drag your creditors? My friend, these things are not Christian. I have to say it's a testimony to the grace of God that Foothill Bible Church pays its bills on time and always has. I can't tell you in my days of banking how many churches and Christian organizations I was aware of that pay their bills late. 60, 90, 120 days late. Taking goods and services from vendors and then not paying them according to the terms. These things should not be. They should not be. The Proverbs says to us in Proverbs 3, verses 27 and 28, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. When you have it with you. Let us not defraud through the management of our wealth. Hoarding, fraud, third, self-indulgence. Self-indulgence, verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a, wanton, a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts 
in the day of slaughter. The third sin that James calls out is that the wicked wealthy have indulged themselves. They've indulged themselves. Notice he says, you have lived luxuriously on the earth. This indicates a pattern of life. It's not that they have occasionally enjoyed a feast. It is that has become what characterizes their lives. We might say it this way, conspicuous consumption, to use a modern term. Conspicuous consumption. You know, the bumper sticker that says that he who has the most toys, what? Wins. The Word of God would take great exception to that notion. James says you've lived like cattle. You fattened your heart like cattle for the day of slaughter. You live in a, in a feedlot. You have your head in a trough. All you do is eat and eat and eat. Never knowing the axe will fall soon. The judgment is at hand. The day of the Lord is close at hand. The judge stands at the door. Like an unreasoning beast, you head for the slaughter. Such vivid language, such strong terminology. One commentator had this to say, and I quote, Material wealth only temporarily quenches the soul's thirst for meaning and acceptance. Acquiring wealth to cure the problem of meaninglessness is like drinking coffee to cure the problem of exhaustion. It can mask the problem, but it cannot cure it. Cannot cure it. If there is a hole in your soul, if there's an emptiness in your heart, no amount of earthly treasure can ever fill it up. It is a spiritual hole and it can only be filled by he who is spirit, God himself. My friends, we need to hear these words because we live in a day and an age in which the constant message that bombards us is you need it. And you need it now. You can't live without it, right? Life, in order to be happy, to be satisfied, to be, to be fulfilled, to be self-actualized, if you like, lies with just one more purchase. Just one more. This whole economy is built on conspicuous consumption. Our best and brightest economists Say the only way out of our present doldrums is people have to spend more money. We need to buy more junk. In fact, now the stuff is designed to to collapse and, and to rot in front of our eyes. We don't even bring things to be repaired anymore, right? It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. And then there's always the new model. New and improved. Which, by the way, I never understood. Because if it's new, how could it be improved? And if it's improved, it can't be new. But be that as it may, new and improved, and out it comes. And we have to have it, don't we? We just got to have it. 
Hoarding. Fraud. Self-indulgence. Number four. Oppression. Oppression. Verse six. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. The reference here to condemned leads me to believe that he's talking about a judicial situation. The basic idea here is that the wealthy control the courts. They control the legal system. They have twisted it and turned it to their own advantage. And they use it to oppress the poor and the righteous. Literally, James says, verse 6, not you put them to death, you have murdered them. Legally. Legally. Now, I don't know if he's speaking figuratively here or he's speaking in actualities. I can, I can see both possibilities. To use and twist the legal system to defraud the worker of their wages and then when uh, they seek some sort of legal relief to have the court in your back pocket might actually lead to the death of those who are most helpless in society. My friends, that would be legal murder. So it's possible. It's possible that at a very minimum it speaks of an attitude or carelessness of a wanton lack of interest in the lives of those who are hurting. Notice James says, this righteous man, he doesn't resist you. He doesn't even resist you. Are you so hard-hearted? That you will do this to a man who won't even resist you. Like a lamb to the slaughter. And you will legally butcher him. For your own benefit. Hoarding. Fraud. Self-indulgence. And depression. These are the wicked stepchildren of wealth. And it's convicting. It is convicting. We live in the last days. The return of the Lord could come at any moment. Is that right? Is that what the Scriptures teach us? It's true. To assume otherwise, by the way, is to assume the posture of the unbeliever, the scoffer, who says, where is your Lord? Things have gone on just like they were for a thousand years. Let me ask you this question. If he can come at any moment, any time, how shall we then live? What should characterize our lives? How should we handle material wealth? What would God have for us? These are serious questions. Serious questions. There's no one answer for all of us other than to let the Spirit of God search our hearts. We say we believe in church planting. Is that right? Why do we believe in church planting? It's because it's the last days. The time is short. There is not much opportunity left. And there is a lot of this world that needs to hear the gospel and to be made into disciples and to be congregated into a body of believers. It's why we've been left here. 
The water of the gospel is free, but plumbing costs money. It takes money to plant churches. It takes money to plant churches. So if we're serious about planting churches, then we need to be serious about our own stewardship. About how we relate to the wealth that God has entrusted to us. One old pastor said a long time ago, if I really want to know the state of a man's soul, I need to look at his check register. I look at his check register. I see how he has spent his money. That tells me the state of his soul. Not what he professes with his mouth. But how does he spend his money? I think he's right. I think he's right. And that's what makes it so convicting, to be honest. What would God have us do? What would God have you do? That's your question. That's your assignment. Think about it. What would God have me do? The end of your handout, I've included for you a couple of verses out of 1 Timothy 6. Just take a look at them while I read them. Timothy, I'm coming to you. But in case I'm delayed, these are the things you need to teach the people of the church. 1 Timothy 3. With regard to money, Timothy teach them this, beginning in verse 17, chapter 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for giving some clarity to this issue. May God grant His grace every one of us to think seriously about the issues of wealth. Oh, Lord, hard words this morning, hard words to hear, hard words to say. Hard, O oh Lord, because it cuts right across the American way. It slices to the heart of the American dream. The accumulation of wealth. O oh Lord, it calls us on the carpet to examine our motives. It does not criticize us, O oh Lord, for what you have instructed, entrusted to us it it challenges us to examine what we do with it and why. Oh, Lord God, please, even in this moment, may your Holy Spirit grant us faith. Faith to hear and to receive your word. Faith to humble our heart and act on it. The name of Jesus Christ would be faithfully proclaimed from this lighthouse and from many more that by your grace we shall one day give birth to. 
We pray for our sister church summit. Pray, O Lord, that there that lighthouse would continue to burn brightly for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.